Thanks for tuning in to another Smart Driving Cars podcast. This edition is sponsored by the Smart ETFs, Smart Transportation and Technology ETF, symbol MOTO. For more information, head to MOTOETF.com. I'm Fred Fishkin, along with the Faculty Chair of Autonomous Vehicle Engineering at Princeton University, Alan Kornhauser. Hi, Alan. Hey, good morning, Fred. Good morning, and we are happy to have joining us Tim Higgins from the Wall Street Journal, author of a new book arriving Tuesday titled Power Play, Tesla, Elon Musk, and the Bet of the Century. Thanks for taking the time with us, Tim. Thank you. It's great to be here. Great to have you, Tim. Well, congratulations on what for many of us will be a must-read book and the reviews from Walter Isaacson in the New York Times and Russ Mitchell in the Los Angeles Times have got to make you feel pretty good. Well, I'm hoping people will like it. Uh, you spend a number of years on these things and you hope people will read it up. Yeah, I'm sure they will. I, I know I am. I mean, <laughs> intriguing. How long, spend, how long did you spend on this book, Tim? I, you know, it's interesting. I began working on this book in 2018. And at the time, I thought it was going to be a story of the collapse, the very public collapse of Tesla. As you recall, um, as the company was trying to bring out the Model 3, it was a real struggle. Um, but as time went on and as I worked on the book, it became very clear this was a different story altogether. This was a story of probably one of the most remarkable corporate turnarounds of this generation. And to be able to say how Tesla went in 2003 from being a rather improbable idea of bringing electric cars to the mainstream to uh, 2020 being the world's most valuable automaker um, that is a remarkable drama and something that I think a lot of people will be interested in understanding how that occurred. Absolutely. Now, tell our listeners and viewers a bit about your background and what led you to doing this book. Yeah, so I spent a number of years in Detroit writing about the automotive industry. I saw the breakup of Daimler Chrysler. I saw the, bank, the bankruptcy of General Motors and then the rise and return of the Detroit auto uh, industry. Um, Mary Barra became CEO. And after a number of years there, I thought, well, it's kind of hard to imagine anything more exciting happening in this industry. Those are all once in a lifetime kind of events. And so I uh, transferred out to San Francisco where I started covering Apple at the time. I was working for Bloomberg and really became more aware in a, in a serious way, the efforts in the Valley uh, to develop autonomous vehicles and really auto tech in general. And that was pretty exciting uh, period of time there. And eventually I, I joined the Wall Street Journal covering kind of the future of cars and included Tesla and really got to understand that company in a new way. And I had been wrong in Detroit. There was something very interesting going on in the auto industry uh, you know, a once uh, in a generation kind of thing that um, we were seeing some major developments occurring, whether it was going to be with autonomy or whether it was going to be electrification. These were things that are sometimes hard to understand when you're deeply rooted in the old way of doing things, which is, you know, probably one of the challenges that traditional automakers have when they think about how the road could be different. Um, ahead. And one of the reasons, one of the benefits that maybe Tesla had early on was that it had no uh, kind of history with how things had been done. Interesting. Now, Tesla doesn't even have a public relations department 
to speak of, other than Elon Musk, I suppose. So how challenging was this to, this get, the, to get the information and the stories that you wanted to be able to write a book like this? Well, this was an incredibly challenging um, reporting assignment. Um, really, one of the goals I had was, you know, to get past the kind of popular myth that, that Elon Musk has put out there that his personal uh, heroics um, had saved the company. And, and no doubt, there would be no Tesla without Elon Musk, but there would be no Tesla without the scores and scores of people behind the scenes who helped develop the Roadster, the Model S, the Model X, the Model 3, designed it, engineered it, manufactured it, and sold it. And at those steps, every way, very interesting dramas, very interesting stories of sacrifice, uh, ups and downs. Um, these were stories that had been sometimes told, but oftentimes not told in any meaningful way. In this, uh, this book, I aim to kind of tell the definitive history of how Tesla became to be and, and how it, it got to this point in time, um, warts and all. There are good things. There are bad things. There are just things that I leave to the reader to decide uh, because one of the things about Tesla in Elon Musk are people come to it with so many different perspectives. It is, you know, on fire on social media all the time. People want to debate it. And, you know, part of that is because the world is changing and Tesla is part of that uh, change. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting you point out because, the, you know, innovation in the car industry, um, uh, it's been tough to find. I mean, you know, at one point GM tried Saturn and, you know, in some sense, Saturn was supposed to be, you know, something like a brand new car company with a new thing and so on. And, and of course, the EV1 was in there somewhere along the road and, 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 and they tried the whole, the whole darn thing. And, and um, you know, it's, 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 it's not been easy because it really isn't easy to manufacture a car. When you, when you look at the, the reliability that the car needs to have uh, to, uh, uh, to just not be a lemon, you know, oh. just to not be a lemon is just phenomenal. And, and it's just not easy. Well, Alan, you hit it, you hit it on the head there. And in the book, I talk about, I spent a lot of time talking about how the EV1 had influenced and inspired um, the Tesla company and the original Roadster. And GM is, is a theme throughout the book because in a lot of ways, GM had thought about a lot of these things. It's not, they're not a bunch of dummies uh, at the Renaissance Center in Detroit where GM's headquarters uh, are located. Um, these are smart people and uh, some people there could see the future. There was this EV1 as you talk about, but in some ways it was ahead of its time. Uh, I've ridden in the EV1 and it's like riding in uh, the, the vision of what the future would be. It's like, it's almost like a, a spaceship uh, that was designed a generation ago where the middle has a bunch of buttons and it's just a weird experience. And people in California that had it, remember it was leased out for a number of years. People loved it. People that had it loved it, but it was full of compromises, uh, whether it was range or just comfort or it was a two seater, for example. I mean, it just, you know, it stood out. And in a lot of, in another thing that you have to remember that early on, you know, the kind of the electrification of the automobile was seen as something that was going to appeal to people that wanted to save money. And so there was always this push to make it as cheap as possible. And you remember the Prius, you know, the Prius kind of looked a little weird when it came out, you know, the hybrid Prius. And the idea was that you wanted to stand out because you were green. And the bet that Tesla was making, in particular, the bet that Elon Musk was making was that if you could make the world's best car, 
that just happened to be electric, then it wouldn't matter to people. They would just buy it. And it would show the world that electric, the electrification of the automobile was possible and attainable, and you didn't have to make life uh, full of compromises. And that, that is really kind of one of the key driving things of Tesla's early days that they were pursuing that set them apart from everybody else. One of the things that I, I sort of, and of course, I don't know Elon, but, but, but from a way distant outside, one of the things that I see about him is, is he picks up on some fundamentals and then basically plays those fundamentals to the hilt. I mean, the, 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 to me, the, you know, one of the fundamental fundamentals of, a, of the electric vehicle, of a Tesla, half as many parts. Man, you know, when you look at that, that means something. I mean, you can leverage that for something. I mean, how do you take those kinds of those kinds of fundamentals that he seems to pounce on and and really deliver? Well, for sure. One of the interesting several interesting anecdotes in the book um, kind of get into how they do product development there. And early on he was super frustrated with the people he was hiring. And, and, and some of them were among some of the most interesting people in the auto industry, but they had a way of, of thinking about the future that was very similar to what they were doing at their previous employer. And this frustrated him greatly. And once he became CEO and had money kind of secured to keep the company afloat, he could really turn to development of the Model S. He, one of the key things that I think is underappreciated about those days was the team that he built. He's got a, an excellent nose for talent and finding people who can share his vision and then motivating them in a way where they feel like they are a part of a mission, uh, that they are reaching for the stars, trying to do something impossible, and that they are all in it together. And that, that was a key thing on, on the Model S, it, finding people who are willing to do it a little bit different. And, and in that, you see that in the Model S with the way they develop that. And it, it really comes into play in the Model 3, where to this point that you make about, uh, you know, really drilling into the details of the vehicle that to save money is in certain ways, where then they have to spend money elsewhere on the battery packs and everything like that. So um, that's, it, it, it's, it's important. Another part of Elon's kind of framework for deciding things is he doesn't want to do something just because that's always the way to do it. It, it, This kind of cliche, uh, well, that's the way we do kind of answer to engineering. He wants to to kind of drill into the why something happens, what's the outcome and this sort of thing, which can be incredibly frustrating if you work for him and you just have to do one part and, you know, why is this becoming this thing? Well, A, maybe you find a better way to do it. Maybe you find a savings to do it. The downside of that is sometimes it wastes a lot of time uh, so sometimes there's a reason why you just do it the way it's done. I, I think, for example, uh, you know, at a certain point, Elon wanted to um, have windshield wipers that would turn on automatically uh, when it started to rain. And the company already had camera shooting out into the world in the, in the, in the windshield before its autopilot system. So why not just use that instead of using the sensor that every other car company has for that exact kind of function. Um, and so, you know, seems simple enough. Well, the actual kind of programming to enable that to happen was a lot harder uh, than anybody anticipated. 
Yeah, yeah, and and the way other people do it, it blocks GPS through your through your windshield, and so your GPS receiver, if it happens to be inside, doesn't work. I mean, you know, right. <laughs> attenuates the signal. But forget about that. Uh, uh, you mentioned autopilot. Um, uh, how important or unimportant or do you see that? Because I know, you know, I've, I've been doing this smart driving cars newsletter for nine years. Well, and, and you know, and when Elon came out and said that he, he was going to do this, I think he had like 10 people working. And I, I, I haven't gone and found my issue, but I said, bull, he, he just isn't going to do anything with 10 people. No way. Hey, you know, damn thing. Well, it's not what he claims it is. It's pretty damn good. What are your, what are your uh, uh, insights and in all that? Well, the interesting about Elon Musk is that he's able to grasp on to what he thinks the future is going to be, right? So uh, think about the electric car. Early on, the idea that electric cars would become mainstream was pretty hard to believe as well, right? It was <laughs> yeah, we gave a- that up 1905 or something. I think they first lost the steam before before they lost the internal combustion engine, but never mind. <laughs> right, and he was our, and one of the key things he was able to do, he and the team, and it wasn't just him at that time, it was co-founders, Martin Eberhard and others, yeah, yeah, yeah. were articulating what that vision of that, of that future would look like. And then they drove towards it. And it was harder than they thought it was going to be. And the same thing you can see with autopilot. Um, He got a taste of it. He got a taste of maybe what that could be like. Uh, In particular, you have to remember at that time, Google has been very aggressive, as you know, uh, on developing autonomous vehicle technology, but also mobile eye has been in the background as well. Yep. Uh, I, you know, I heard an anecdote Absolutely. about him yep. going out, you know, be, testing what the mobile eye system was like and just becoming yep. really enamored with that. And what he wanted to do was push it more and more. So uh, the mobile eye system could, uh, you know, do more than it was originally capable of doing. And that's what he had his team early on uh, do was push the limits of what uh, a driver assist uh, system could do. So it could feel more and more like autonomous, even though, I mean, as you and I know, ADAS systems are not autonomous vehicles. Yeah, they are not. And we shouldn't even suggest that they are. We should remind everybody that they aren't. You've got to pay attention. Okay, right? Right. And this causes uh, a drama inside of the company because, you know, people working on these systems know what they are. And there was concern that that Musk would go out uh, with time and say that this was uh, fully autonomous vehicle technology. And there was pushback on that. So you see those dramas inside the company um, early on. And I, you know, even to this day, his comments about what the cars can do um, leave a lot of people with pause who understand the technology. Yeah. And, and with pause, and I guess some of us even say that, you know, he should stop because my goodness, uh, you know, at least what I write, he, hey, he has a really good product and it probably is safer than any other entity. Certainly his his uh, crash absorption and so on, because he doesn't have a, a, a an engine up there to come through the firewall and, and take your legs out. I mean, he has all this shock absorber available for him for crash attenuation. So, you know, beautiful in terms of that design. But he, he, he continues to want to talk about the future as if it's here now and it could be hurting i mean it, you know it's it, it's it could be hurting it's it's made him a lot of enemies that we some of whom we've spoken to on the podcast alan too so 
you, you mentioned Tim also that he, he's got this nose for attracting talent, for finding talent. Does he have the nose to keep them? I guess that's, that's the question. I mean, it's, it's, there seems to be, from what you read, somewhat of a revolving door, at least at, near the top. Well, without a doubt, it's uh, very challenging to work for Elon Musk. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's interesting when you know doing the reporting, I would talk to people who were attracted to him or even still attracted to him. They just don't want to work there anymore. Maybe Elon doesn't want them to work there anymore. I mean, there's always <laughs> there's some of those things where it, it, he, he be, one of the, the kind of commonality, common things you see with him is that he becomes attracted to a person. He, he really gets excited for the, about this, what this person can do. There's a lot of shine on them. And then after a while, he just, you know, tires on them or, you know, finds their flaws and then they're, they're kind of on the outs. And so it, for a lot of people, they have a very short window of time in which they can make impact at Tesla. And in a lot of ways, some people can make a lot of impact at Tesla. It's not the huge uh, bureaucracy that is uh, another automaker. I mean, these automakers, the traditional automakers are huge silos with paperwork to do paperwork. And that's important for a lot of reasons uh, at those companies because of regulatory concerns and safety and, and have developed these systems. But at Tesla, it's, it's, you can have an imprint. Um, and w- one of the, some of the interesting things that I would find when I would talk to people was that uh, you know, early on, the way he formed some of the culture there, whether it would be um, you know, making decisions, he didn't want necessarily decisions being made because something was within the budget in some ways he would argue that the budget would, you know, if you were making that kind of decision, you weren't really thinking he wanted to, if you were going to be spending money, it needed to have a reason. And oftentimes if you could articulate that reason, uh, then he would just sign off on, I mean, that was another thing he was oftentimes signing off on purchases directly and continues to do that for big ones uh, for even some seemingly small ones. And this was important to him um, to kind of create this thinking inside the, the people making those decisions or why are we making these decisions, right? So, you know, in some ways he could be very empowering. Uh, on the other hand, if, if something was going wrong, he, you know, he would get involved in it. If it was an engineering thing, even if it wasn't going wrong, he would seem to delight in getting into the weeds on something and going to the direct engineer directly, not waiting to go through the bosses, but, uh, but you know, he would just call up somebody and ask them and, and, you know, so in some ways that teaches the managers, the executives that they need to tell him um, what is going on because he might just go to the, the source and then that could be problematic. Uh, executives, senior executives that were being hired were told at a certain point that all Elon does all day is deal with uh, emergencies or, or, or fires, if you will, uh, because if it's getting to his level, it's probably a disaster in, in the making. And so you know, they would be told, well, don't hide anything from him. Let him, you know, let him know what's going. So he's not surprised. He doesn't want to be surprised. All of that sounds like really smart, right? I mean, that sounds like kind of, you know, management textbook kind of stuff, but in in practicality, however, that wasn't always the way it would work. And managers over time um, were conditioned um, to maybe try to not always be as transparent with him as possible because if he became interested in something, he might bore down into it and it might make it a, a bigger problem than it needed to be in their opinions. Right. So I, I think of, you know, I think of 2018, for example, 
um, he became very, uh, I'm sorry, I, I think of 2016, he became very interested in the, the assembly process of the vehicles and wanted more and more automation because he thought that that would uh, allow them to uh, save money over time and be faster. And people around him were cautioning that the moving up timelines the way he was doing and the automation was going to be, there was going to be problems. And those people tended to, you know, find the door really quickly. And those who, uh, you know, wanted to keep their job tended to maybe not, you know, express themselves in, in a certain way. Um, I think of a, another period in 2018 where the company desperately needs to have every delivery of its vehicles possible to make its to make its quarterly numbers because everything's great, really on the line. And one of the managers speaks up and says, you know, essentially they're not going to make the goal. They're instead of making a hundred thousand sales, they're going to make something like eighty thousand. And that person. Uh, did not last long after that. And it, these are the kinds of examples of like, you needed to speak power to the, 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 the king, but maybe the king doesn't always want to hear that power and you might, you might get, get sideways with him. And so that, that is one of the tensions you see at Tesla time and time again. You know, Walter Isaacson in his review of your book, which is terrific, uh, drew some comparisons between uh, Musk and, and Steve Jobs, whom you've also covered. Um, Tell us what your thoughts are about that with these two men, if you look at them. Exactly. You know, Walter, of course, always talked about the reality distortion field around around Steve Jobs. And it definitely you see Musk envisioning a future and being dead set on attaining that. Some of it, you know, it's it's interesting. He's not he's brilliant. He's a, a smart engineer, clearly. Uh, but sometimes he attacks issues or problems or ideas with some naivete or delusion. And those are sometimes to his benefit. Why can't the world be like this? He, he does the math, he does the engineering and says, you know, theoretically, it should be like this. In his mind, it can be like that. And, and the thing that probably differs him from other people is his risk tolerance and his ability to access capital, the money to do those ideas. To, you know, there, I think you see a lot of people who make their fortune and then they're very in, uh, content to sit on that mound of money and live out the rest of their life. He, remember, he made a, a, a life-changing fortune early on with uh, PayPal and plunged that money into SpaceX, into Tesla. And with Tesla, you know, he risked, basically risked it all. And in his ability then to continue to raise money, to sell his vision of the future to people who then handed over billions of dollars to keep the company going was one of the critical things. So the, the vision that what he wanted and the ability to articulate uh, what he wanted got people excited. And that, in a lot of ways, is kind of one of the main stories of Tesla. When people say, how did it get to this point? Well, he sold the world on the idea that the, the electric car is the way to go. And, you know, it came at a time he benefited from the fact that the increasingly more and more people were concerned about pollution. Uh, regulations and governments around the world were kind of leaning towards looking for solutions. And for years, there was always a debate, especially in the auto industry, what was the right technology for zero emissions, whether it was hydrogen or electric. And, and everyone was always looking for the perfect solution. Well, he put he essentially took off-the-shelf batteries. I mean, it's not that case anymore, but took batteries that he could easily get. He, Martin Eberhardt and Tesla uh, did this. And it showed the world that you could do this and people would buy it. And it just kind of grew from there. And so, you know, these are, he saw the world in a different way 
um, and, and was able to get the money to deliver that. At yeah, but, but he was really elegant as to how he did it. He, I mean, he sold these things to Californians. And I, I used to say, anybody who buys a Tesla, that's not their only car. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, And and so the range anxiety, boom, because he's selling it to people that have a whole fleet of other cars, you know, they can have a toy. And he focused, he focused on that, you know, the the, the decision to build the the charging infrastructure and do that, you know, how you raise the capital and the effort. And, you know, if you had to go explain that to, you know, a, a, a board or something like that and go through all the things they they probably would never see the fundamentals of what that does. Again, it fundamentally attacks this range anxiety problem, which is the key fundamental problem. You go out and you, did he pay anything for the land that he bought in Nevada to build the, the, the battery place out there i i figured he, that that was like a housing development deal he was you know buying getting the land going to have a, something there and then he could fall back and sell houses but maybe i'm i'm too naive about what really i mean to me these things like these look like fundamental basic decisions not a nuance of a you know high speed trading in which you make the, the epsilon on a whole bunch of things i mean these are Talk to me here. Yeah, absolutely. You, you, you hit on some, you you have some very good points there. It's interesting. So early on, uh, the vision for the Model S is being developed. And there are multiple people who have been put into this kind of role of trying to figure out what the car is going to be. And Elon is just frustrated with the work they're doing. And one of the key tensions is that the budget for that car was very small. They wanted it to be a $50,000 car and he had traditional auto guys working on it and they're doing the math saying, you know, this is what you get. It's like a Ford Focus, right? <laughs> you know, and he's wanting, you know, the top of the, he's wanting something that's going and to- And a big screen. <laughs> right. And so not until- uh, you, know what the, you know what those big screen cost? I used to buy them 30 years ago. They were, you know- <laughs> Right, exactly. And so and not until, you know, it's one thing to have the vision, but he, when he became the CEO- then he could just sign off on this. It yeah. was, it was, you know, yes, it's good. And when the car came out, it was really, you know, with the one you wanted, it was really a $120,000 car, which is a huge difference. If you work at GM and your goal and your mission is to have a car, that's going to have a selling price for $50,000. And then it comes out at $120,000. You have done something wrong. <laughs> you're not, not there. How, you aren't there. That's I not mean, how you become I mean, the CEO of General Motors. You're, uh, you know, it takes you 30 years to get your fir- first promotion. You are never close to that. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, that is the difference of Tesla there. He had that ability to say, okay, once the Model S was coming out, you're right. A lot of those early buyers, this was one of multiple cars in their garage. So the dependability wasn't necessarily an option and necessarily as big a concern, but that customer service experience, he knew that was key. So you hear stories from those early customers. You might hear some horror stories, but you also hear these stories about like, wow, wow, the company really took care of me. I was talking to one guy who was on a road trip in Europe and his car broke, he got a flat tire or something. And the company offered to fly him home and take care of the car just because he was a customer. Now they can't do that with the model three and the model Y, you know, as you become a, a mass market car, that customer experience, you, you're, 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 it's a struggle. And that's where GM and the Toyota and these guys have some other kind of levers they can pull. And that's where you see t- Tesla struggling today. But if you go back to those early decisions, so he's focusing on the, to your point, the things that, 
it really kind of matter at that time. So the Model S comes out and then there is really some range anxiety, but it's, it, it, you know, the, the majority of people are really charging their car at their homes, right? Yeah, and yeah. so he, he wanted to appeal to the road tripper, you know, because if you have a car, there's this idea you might go someplace. So in order to save money on the initial, the early uh, supercharging stations, they really, what they did was they focused on areas that rich people in Los Angeles and San Francisco would be taking road trips to Tahoe from you know, <laughs> in Northern California, Las Vegas and Southern California. So you had a route. So in reality, yeah. you only needed a couple stations and then his team was very savvy and they would go negotiate these deals. And I'm told that they actually weren't paying a lot for any of this. And that was oh in a lot of ways, it was marketing early on. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. now it's grown out and it's, it's thousands of these chargers. And it's a huge moat that they have and an ecosystem that's really hard to compete against. Yeah, I drive, test drive a lot of vehicles. It's hard to compete. You said it. It's hard. I mean, he's established himself at the top and made made the cost of entry up to his level extremely high, hasn't he? I mean, (laughs) now, now maybe he's creating a new revenue stream by opening it up, opening up to these charging stations for for other electric vehicles. You could be. He's, he said he's, he's later this year. Um, you know, it, it comes as governments uh, around the world are talking about building out this infrastructure. So you can imagine a scenario where, you know, if you're going to get government aid to, to do these, you probably have to be open. Right. And so he's Tesla's smart. They've always been figured out. They've always figured out ways to take advantage of whatever government incentives out there are available. And that was key early on with the, the tax credits for buying electric vehicles that could allow the price point to be higher than, you know, essentially you were getting a tax break to defer some of that cost. So a car that was $60,000, maybe didn't look like that. You could maybe tell your wife, Hey, it's not really this expensive. Uh, but you know, that it, that's one of the things that also uh, energy credits uh, get, they get for selling electric vehicles. Oh, they man. can then turn around and sell to car companies that haven't got into the, the game as much. And that's really been key has training wheels for the company to get on the road. And, and the criticism has been, well, they're not making profit because of the cars they sell. Well, the cars, that, that those credits in effect act as a multiplier on top of the car. So every car that they are selling, they were making actually more money, which helped them get to the point where just this most recent quarter, they, are, they posted a, a more than $1 billion profit uh, a record for them. And it wasn't just all energy credits. It, it, and if, if they can continue that, that is the kind of thing they knew, need to fuel this massive growth that Elon has envisioned. Get, the idea of getting to 20 million vehicles a year, you know, that's, that's, how, he, that's how he's going to pay for it. In the, in the over-the-air updating, do, do you have some, how did they get there to do that? I just think I think that is such a great thing that and them, of course, not having any dealers. But but in terms of the how did they actually do that? Because man, nobody else does that and nobody else upgrades their vehicle. Everybody else wants it to as soon as you buy it, they want that thing to 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 be obsolete, less than obsolete. So you go in there and buy another one. And then, but to sit there and 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 go to a mechanism in which it actually continues to improve your vehicle as you own it at essentially zero cost, because so much of it is software 
<laughs> and you can improve software. What's your insight on all of that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, over the air updates, I know your audience is very sophisticated, but like a cell phone, the software can be updated and the device can be doing something else, right? So absolutely. It, it gets to, you know, one of the benefits that Tesla, you know, originally made early in, in in the day, early on its history, the, the argument it made to investors when Martin Eberhardt was going around the fountain of the co-founders went around raising money was that this is a Silicon Valley company, that it is a tech company. And this is one of those examples where that would prove true for them and that they did have to hire car people and those car people were very important. But the, the software uh, capabilities of Tesla are like uh, no other car company. And so they had people in there who knew how to do those things. And, and that ability in a lot of ways is probably, you know, one of the, one of the key things that saved the company from a potential disaster early on. And let me take you back in time. So the model, uh, the model S, the luxury sedan, this is really Elon Musk's bet that if he can bring out a car that people consider better uh, than any other car that just happens to be electric, that it will make the case uh, for the company to go mainstream with the, what it would become the Model uh, 3. And so this was the make kind of a make or break car. It comes out. Um, and one of the concerns that people had early on with electric cars was you got all these batteries. Uh, we're seeing uh, laptop fires with these things. The lithium ion is, is considered sometimes unstable. And what would happen? Uh, would Tesla vehicles be safe? And early on, uh, there started to be a string of car fires uh, with the model, the model S. And what was happening was the Model S was driving over road debris. The debris was puncturing uh, the battery pack and a fire was beginning. And this, this, could, this is a critical time for the company. The stock is beginning to fall. The questions, uh, we've seen these kinds of questions for other automakers really derail them. And for a company that doesn't have a lot of money, it doesn't really have a reputation, this could have been disaster. One of the things they were able to do because of the over-there updates was they looked at the situation and they realized if they just tweaked the suspension to raise it up a little bit, it would decrease the probability of those kind of punctures by happening by a dramatic amount. And so no other company could do this, but Tesla could simply write code, send it out, and all of a sudden the car just moved up just you know, a hair a little bit more, the probability fell, and it gave them time to then come up with a physical uh, a safeguard as well. And the, you saw the crashes. You didn't see any. You didn't see these kinds of things happening uh, shortly after that. And just a key moment in the company's uh, history, where the, to your point, OTA really uh, made the day and was a critical thing. And, and as automakers, competitors are watching that. You know, they're you know they realize that there's some there's some real uh, things that Tesla has in its arsenal that they need to watch out for. I mean, this is fundamental to keep them up there because, you know, the, the key example, but it's available on all other things. Um, um, let me ask you about an, another thing that, that bothers me. What's the matter with their um, uh, automated emergency braking system? Or have you looked at that thing at all? I keep, you know, I, of course, I have... I have no insight into them, but I just look at at all these crashes, starting with the uh, with the Brown crash in in Florida and so on. Mm-hmm. It's always a stationary object, right? Okay, <clears throat> and and the automated emergency braking system should be dealing with that. 
Now, of course, the problem with the, with stationary objects ahead when you're driving down the road, there are gazillions of them out there. They're not only the trees and the telephone poles and the parked cars and so on going by you, but there's there's the the sign, there's the overpass uh, above you, there's the tree canopies, you know, they're really in the, in the lane ahead and they are stationary. And so you have to be really good at both identifying where they are and being certain that you can pass underneath them or pass to the right or to the left of them, you know? Otherwise, if, you know, if small probability they appear in front of you, then all of a sudden the brakes start going on. So you can't have that because otherwise then people say, well, what the hell are the brakes going on for? And, you know, that's unacceptable. But every once in a while, it is a tractor trailer that is, you know, broadside. It is right. a, a fire truck that's in the lane ahead. It is a whatever that you've been following very closely. The guy sees and moves out of there. You keep going. You see, a holy hell, that's the reason why he did it, but you're not paying attention. And boom, the thing, you know, ugliness. That's what all those supposedly 29 uh, things that uh, NHTSA is looking at. Do you have any insight on what's going on with that? And sure. Or it, it gets into to, that one? Yeah, so it gets to, we go back to the conversation about early days of autopilot. And the tension between having a, an experience that almost lets you think it's an autonomous vehicle versus um, this, this challenge of it's not an autonomous vehicle, right? I mean, <laughs> you got to pay attention. Right. You, know, you might not have your hands on the wheel, but, but you got to be able to grab it, right? <laughs> right. And I, I, I know that you have probably used autopilot. I have used it. And it is, especially the first few times you use it as a driver, it is, it is early on, it was an amazing thing. You know, other automakers had now have come up with something very similar, but at the time it was really pushing what you could do. And it felt, it gave you more confidence. Much better um, than my Mercedes S class that I ran out and bought and, and, and first went off the line in 2014 because it had Distronics plus sure. damn thing can't lane, lane center worth a damn, although they, whatever, but you know, sure. I agree so people, with you. <laughs> so people who use it uh, a lot tend to become very, they become overconfident in its abilities. And even Elon Musk has said that this is a challenge that that you start to think it can do more than it can really do. And so why is isn't he then saying, damn it, don't relax, as opposed to out there saying, never mind, that's another question. Keep well, going where you're going. I'm I, mean, that, but, but you're hit, I mean, that's that's the challenge here, right? So, you know, unlike a General Motors who did their super cruise system with the eye tracking and, and the, the, the sensors in, in the wheel to ensure that you're touching it, yeah. he didn't want those kinds of things. A, he would say they didn't work, or, or B, um, you know, people around him would talk about how he didn't want a system that was seemed to be nagging the driver. You, you know, in a lot of ways, it, you want it's a seamless you kind of a feeling that this thing just works. Well, these are the trade-offs that Tesla is making. Um, and you're hitting on something that there's a lot of debate about. And I don't think we've seen a resolution on, uh, you know, what can what should be allowed with ADAS systems? Yeah, but at least I... At least, yeah, what should be allowed with ADAS system, and I know, and, and Consumer Reports is out there testing the things, and IIHS is out there testing the things, and, and whatever, and trying to see what they could, and it, it, it's, uh, yeah. <laughs> is, is he worried about uh, telling 
Tesla owners directly don't rely on this. It's not, it's not really full self-driving, no matter it's what. It's not I perfect. Know. I mean, yeah. nothing's perfect, though. <clears throat> Darn it, damn it. Why yeah, he's asking $10,000 or a couple hundred a month, I guess, for, for a system that doesn't live up to the moniker. Well, I mean, it is the, the only thing that's fully self-driving about it is the name. It's not. The technology is not there yet. And that gets to uh, you see this pattern of the company selling. Early on, it was deposits for the vehicle. You were buying into the future. And when he's talking about the vehicle uh, ability to be fully self-driving in 2016, this inside the company was controversial. And there was a camp of people who felt like he was promising something that wasn't possible yet. And there was concern about that. And this is a moment in the company's history where, for some, they felt like he had gone too far, that in the past, he would make these promises uh, about the car's capabilities, and people would look at each other and say, what did he just do? Well, you know, they would work together to make it possible, and they might they would try to achieve it, and they maybe would it, it surprise themselves on what they could do. And here's a point in time where some people feel like he just went too far, and it's evident with the vehicles on the road today that in fact, they do not have self-driving yet. And so, uh, you know, this, but he is still it, making that, that promise, so to speak. And he, I think as recently as this weekend, perhaps. Right. This is, this is one of the, the ways the company has evolved over time that some people are clearly concerned about. Well, before we break, I want to get into this Russ Mitchell in his LA times review of your book uh, made the lead you're reporting on, on what happened five years ago. You say Apple's Tim Cook was talking to Musk on the phone and Cook put out the idea of Apple buying Tesla. Musk was interested, but responded. This is a, this is a true story. Tell, tell us about it. Yeah, well, the what's important here is that this is the story that Elon Musk told his people that this offer was, this conversation was happening and he said, uh, well, I want to be CEO. And Cook supposedly said, well, of course you can be CEO of Tesla under Apple. He said, no, I want to be CEO of Apple, to which in Musk's recounting, Tim Cook said F you and hung up the phone. And now this is, you know, first of all, Tim Cook has said he's never talked to Elon Musk. And uh, since this has come out, Elon says he's never talked uh, to Tim Cook. But what's, that doesn't matter. What's important in this anecdote is this is what Elon Musk was telling his team at the time, at a time when the company was in trouble. The Model X production was delayed. Cash was running short. The stock was going down. It's understandable that some people inside the company were hoping that a white knight, a company like Apple, would swoop in and save the day. And the message that Elon Musk was putting out to some people inside that company was that that wasn't happening. They were the masters of their fate. They had to solve this problem. And two, this anecdote is important because it is one of many examples in the book that show uh, Elon Musk's ego and um, uh, over in, in, in his ego and his confidence growing in a way that, when combined in 2016, uh, put the company on the road to near bankruptcy in 2018. And what do I mean by that? In 2016, remember, this is the time when Tesla purchased SolarCity. This is when Musk is making these rather grandiose claims about autopilot and self-driving capabilities. And this is when Musk is making the decision to pull ahead production of the Model 3 
And, and all three of these things, people around him are warning him that these are, these are risky decisions. These are risky moves at a time when the company is on the verge of becoming a mainstream automobile. The Model 3 is within sight, and, and that is going to be a challenge into itself. And so he's making these decisions that when you flash, fast forward to 2018, the company is, is on the line. It's staring into the abyss. And it's, it's go back to 2016, and that is when those decisions were made. And so it, it really kind of hits on this, this, this kind of point that, that with the success of the Model S, um, Musk, uh, his, his, his kind of, he, he kind of starts to change. And people around him uh, can no longer uh, always reason with him. Um, he uh, becomes kind of his own entity in a lot of ways. And that is part of the drama of of this book and of the Tesla story is, is how he becomes Elon Musk that we all know today. Well, I mean, don't you think this is sort of a a constant, almost a constant in, in Silicon Valley, or maybe has been a constant in, in entrepreneurial industrializations, um, you know, since day one, I mean, you, you look at we can go back to look at the struggles of Westinghouse and 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 of Thomas Edison's and Nikola Tesla at the time when you're innovating with fundamental electricity and and who's going to win and and the kind of tenacity and vision and risk and almost losing it. I mean you. I mean, one can just look at the at Amazon post two thousand. You know, there it's on its back, almost dying. I mean, why in the hell didn't I buy then? Damn it! You know, right. I mean, everybody you know, questioning I mean, why weren't they making? I'd be a rich guy. Come on, Tim. I'd be rich guy. Right. I mean, it's a, to your point. This is a story of the ages. Uh, and, you know, yeah. of, of of the rise. Uh, and fall. Uh, in this case, uh, we saw another rise. It, it, the story of Tesla fundamentally is a story about the fight for control. First, it was Elon Musk fighting to control Tesla itself. Then it was a fight to control what his vision for the company would be. Then it was a fight against the auto industry for what the future of the auto industry would look like. A fight for control against short sellers, a fight for control against regulators, a fight for control uh, really within his own ego to keep himself from sometimes making his being his own worst enemy. It, it, you know, it is at the end of the day, a, a huge human drama, a, a power struggle, uh, if you will, a power play um, that we can continue to see over and over. Okay, let me ask you a question along that with respect to uh, to the auto industry. And I, I haven't looked at the data and maybe I should, or maybe it's just looking at the data. If you sort of look at, at the auto industry relative to this S&P, for example, uh, you know, pre-Musk and assume that it sort of stays doing what it did relative to the S&P pre-Musk, isn't the whole auto industry above where it would have been if it would have just stayed that way? I mean, hasn't, hasn't he not only raised his own boat raised all the other boats too even though I, i'm i or do we have to ask adam jonas or something like that no, that's a good point i mean yeah, look at know. i think people you know look at general motors in particular how many years were they just kind of bumping along post-bankruptcy yeah. with their share price and of great frustration 
uh, to investors. And I think to, to even maybe, uh, as I recall, Adam Jonas being a little bit of frustrated that yeah. they weren't getting more credit for what they were doing. But, yeah. you know, that's the interesting. So, you know, 2018 was the near collapse of Tesla. Right. And then two years later, 2020, they are the world's most valuable automaker. What happened? Right. Well, he, Elon Musk proved to the world that he could execute. The Model 3 is out there. You yeah. know, a lot of a lot of people want to say to me, well, why isn't Tesla just, uh, you know, the next, uh, you know, you know, it, why is this not a fraud? Well, it's not a fraud. They have Model 3s on the ground. You can buy. I've driven a Model 3. You can go buy a Model 3. A lot of people are buying Model 3s. Yeah. Right. So the, All you my know, neighbors have them. Damn it. I mean, around Princeton. I mean, <laughs> the, 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 the question about for for investors was in 2019 after 2018. You're kind of bouncing around here. The Model 3, it's really hard to get it out. Uh, you know, they, they get a couple profitable quarters and then they don't have profit. And then the investor community are saying, wait a second, we're, you know, there's a lot of frustration that, you know, Elon keeps promising that they're going to be profitable and all these things. And people are losing faith in his ability to execute. So what changed the world was he got that factory that he promised in China opened, despite many people believing not possible. Once that occurred, it, the, the idea was here is Tesla. It is executed on the Model 3. It's getting multiple factories. If Elon can continue to execute, the world will change here. And what that did, that positive outlook, that enthusiasm for the potential probably got, if you talk to automotive experts, people that follow this, they don't understand the valuation at this point. Because you're essentially, you're valuing Tesla at not just being like, the, you, know, you know, having huge success, but being the only one that's successful in the world. And, you know, we don't need to talk about that. But what it did was it allowed Tesla to address one of the key fundamental problems it's had from the get-go, that it didn't have enough cash. Eating in the car business is a cash-eating business. To bash metal, you need a lot of cash. And having the, the stock price go the way it did, Tesla very easily could raise billions of dollars in capital very cheaply, not give up control, and have a war chest to try to weather uh, any cyclical downturn that any automaker is going to have. So it, it addressed this huge issue for them. And, and now they can continue to try to focus on that rapid growth that eats so much cash. And that, that's what changes Tesla and allows uh, you know, them to have yet another uh, second act and, and to try to kind of get to that next level. We'll be back with more. But first, uh, this is a good time to remind you about our sponsor, the Smart ETFs, Smart Transportation and Technology ETF, symbol MOTO. To get more info, head to MOTOETF.com. On the website, look for the white paper. It's called the Smart Transportation Revolution. It's under the Insights and News tab. Some great information there about making informed decisions about investing. You may know ETFs can be a smart way to spread risk with investments and focus on a particular category of stocks. The website again is MOTOETF.com. We're back with more of the Smart Driving Cars podcast and our guest, Tim Higgins from the Wall Street Journal, author of a new book arriving Tuesday, Power Play, Tesla, Elon Musk, and the Bet of the Century. Musk has Tesla, SpaceX, Boring, and brain ship tech going on. I don't know what else. There may be more. Any insights, Tim, into how he does this? How does he divide his time, attention, brain power? That's always the question. Everybody always wants to know how he does it. And he has the ability to, to focus on certain things at certain times. You know, I, I, was, I remember talking to one engineer um, about Elon and 
And then, you know, this person, I said, you know, all these crazy things are happening in 2018, yet there's still meetings. He's still meeting about vehicle issues. And he would come into the meetings and be totally focused on what was going on, whatever engineering thing, he just totally get into it. And the, the, these people would be, you know, they'd be looking on Twitter and saying like, there's a lot of other stuff going on too. <laughs> you know, that one of the challenges for them is sometimes you might have even less patience in those periods of time. And so if you had to tell Elon Musk some bad news, you want to try to figure out how it would be on a day that he would be less wound up. And so at a certain point, uh, you, were, you were definitely following the gossip regs to see where his head was at on things. But how does he manage running all this stuff? Uh, he has, he essentially, I think about it as like Elon Inc. And he's the top of it. And he's got Tesla, which is his own company, SpaceX, which is his own company. These other companies that you mentioned, they all kind of funnel up into his office. And he spends, you know, depending upon where the emergency is or where his focus, whatever the biggest thing, most important thing is, is where he's putting his attention. So when it was model three production hell, he, you know, was spending a lot of time uh, on that issue. And, you know, he likes to say that he was sleeping on the factory floor and that, you know, that that's where his time was. He, he does a lot of video calls with other places. He's, he's on his jet all the time going between places. The key thing though, from people I talk to is he seems to focus on whatever is the most pressing issue that needs to be dealt with. And that is kind of where his attention is. So in a lot of ways, he is kind of hopping from fire to fire, um, at least at the point in these stories on Tesla, that was kind of how he was operating. You know, after all of your reporting and, and the work on this book, what are your thoughts about where Tesla and Musk are going to be in five years? I know that's a dangerous thing to ask uh, with all of the new electric vehicle competition. Tesla is going to face increasing competition, uh, no doubt about it. Um, but he knew that and invited it in many ways, he, right? He wanted it. He absolutely wanted it. In some ways, if there is no more Tesla tomorrow, Tesla was it had met its goal, and its original goal was to to make the auto and to wake the auto industry up to the idea of electrification. That kind of was one of the really the goals of the company, and so they have reached it, right? But he's not going to be content with that, and so. You know, the challenges with these other car companies, you know, for so often we've talked um, about what's going to be the Tesla killer. What vehicle is going to come out that is just going to smoke the Model S or the Model 3? And in, I think a lot of people have been disappointed because that's never happened, right? You, you see something come out and it kind of nibbles, at it, you know, it takes a little bit of market share. And that really is probably going to be the biggest challenge for Tesla in the next few years is not the Tesla killer but the Tesla market nibbler, these car, com- these car companies with something in each segment that takes away a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And this becomes a real competitive race, just like Toyota, General Motors and Ford fighting over, uh, you, know, per, you know, points and market share, uh, and rather than just Tesla having green pastures in the EV space. Uh, that, that'll be hard. It'll be hard for Tesla to adapt um, to a sales and service model that can handle all of these new customers that they project. One of the challenges that's really clear in, in PowerPlay is the balance that Elon has to make between investing in production and investing in sales and service. Sales and service is not something that he likes to get in the nitty gritty on. He, he, he clearly loves to get into the engineering stuff. He likes to have a good customer experience, but the, the blocking and tackling of sales is not necessarily uh, something that he's shown a lot of strength at. And you continue to see with the company that each kind of 
a quantum leap, if you will, of size that the company goes through when it comes out with new products. There's always problems with the sales and service part. And so, which in some ways they had a pass with the Model S because to your point earlier on, or to the point of our conversation earlier on, the Model S appealed to people who had multiple cars and they could be okay if the car was in the shop for a while. You know, they might not like it, but it was kind of, they were accustomed maybe to having the luxury cars that were temperamental. So it wasn't out of the out of the realm. But when you start talking about people who, this is the car that is going to take them to their job every day, their daily driver, that patience goes out the window. Uh, and, you know, at, at a certain point. And so can, maintaining that brand loyalty and getting them to buy the second car, the third car, a lifetime of cars, that is going to be one of the big challenges that they have going. And then uh, third, I would say one of the, the clear challenges that the company has uh, is developing a leadership team that uh, can take over from Elon, but maybe not in five years, but that has the kind of the management shops um, to run the world's most valuable automaker. Uh, he has an ability, as we've talked about, to find great talent. But uh, one of the things that is developed there is sometimes are the people around him may not have that great, that kind of lengthy experience in the auto industry or running other companies, but they have experience managing up to Elon and all of his, uh, you know, pros and cons. And, you know, that that would be, you know, being a challenge, it would be a challenge there. Uh, the, so the question of, you know, who will be the CEO in the future is going to ha- begin to become a bigger uh, kind of question mark as time goes on. Alan, a couple of other quick headlines from the latest Smart Driving Cars newsletter before we wrap up. Nikola founder uh, Trevor Milton has been charged with lying to investors. He was indicted on charges of securities fraud and, and wire fraud. And uh, that's one of the big headlines in, in the newsletter and elsewhere. Yeah, well, you know, speaks for itself. Uh, you know, what can you say? I don't want to say anything. The Phoenix New Times had a headline asking, and this is something that you've asked before, was the backup driver in an Uber autonomous car crash wrongfully charged? The report focuses on a motion asking that the case be sent back to a grand jury because the previous one did not get to hear information critical to the case, according to the attorneys. That one I do have an opinion on, and I'm an outspoken opinion on that. Maybe Tim can comment on my opinion, too, but I, I think yes. I mean, come on. What are they doing charging, you know, some worker who's, you know, whatever it, there was problem in the code. And if you want to charge anybody there, charge the folks who wrote the code. I mean, come on. You know, the system saw her six seconds, six seconds before it hit her. Okay. And the, the code was written to disregard stationary objects ahead. Okay. It was written that way. Why? Because because of the unreliability and the detection of those things and so on, identification and so on and so forth. And they didn't want to hit the brakes, you know, too often. Therefore, what do they do? And that never happens. And therefore, you know, disregard it. It's in the code. Somebody looks at the code, they'll find it. You know, the, the automated emergency braking system was supposed to be on if you were traveling at greater than 48 miles an hour. They were traveling at 41. Okay, come on. All right. 
and 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 not that you want to put the code writers in jail or indict them but but there has to be responsibility there by those who write the code because in the end when all this stuff goes out there and is actually there you know um the person that the, the entities that wrote the code it's the code that's doing the right driving and that's the thing that's responsible and then you have to go and talk to those folks not we all know that you don't know what you don't know so we all try to learn and the other comment will comment on the new york times article about how bad um, you know um, uh, beta testing is no beta testing is not bad and you don't do beta testing on a closed course because you already did that you already know that you already got all the information from a closed course that's the easy stuff do beta testing because you have to go up against mother nature and she's tough and she throws curveballs and sliders and stuff you can't hit and so it shows up with new stuff and somehow you have to you know encounter those and of course you want to make sure that the people that are doing that are, are helping you and 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 working with you and doing that and you know, as we've we argued here you know, or at least i've argued you know elon needs to tone it down and and say hey be a little bit more responsible in doing in doing this because it really doesn't do what the words if you went up to websters and looked them up and did the you know whatever and you know don't do that and they should admit it he has a great product there and and through all this it can get better but if you let the people that are out there doing it think that they can you know whatever and 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 become loose cannons on the ship you're in trouble so anyway those are my comments Tim, 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 you want to come back and have a of, comment uh, on my comment but, uh, anyway i mean it's contra yeah i'm sorry i didn't quite catch you what was the question i was saying uh, any yeah. any any thoughts about the prospects of elon toning it down <laughs> i don't think elon tones anything down so um <laughs> you know i you're you're seeing the you know the the uber crash uh 2017 was tragic um but also in some ways an important wake up call probably for the industry in a whole. Um, agree, I think agree, agree. A lot of people were chasing a lot of dollar signs and the expectations for what the technology could do had grown to be very unrealistic. And, um, and it's at the point you, we don't have robot taxis for the world yet. That technology <laughs> is, is not quite ready. And we don't know when it'll be ready. And in that crash and that death um, is, a, is a horrible reminder that people's lives are at stake in, one, in a way that Silicon Valley is not accustomed to, right? When you, um, you know, try to go fast and break things when you're making software for uh, selling ads or uh, having cool pictures on your smartphone, um, people's lives are not at risk. And it's an ongoing tension that we see here as Silicon Valley becomes more engulfed in auto, it's auto space, where we see it with Tesla is that, um, you know, bringing some of that excitement and razzle-dazzle of tech to cars is very cool, but also there, there does need to be the kind of the trade-off of, of, of safety. And um, it's a tension that we're seeing um, for a lot, of, a lot of companies. Yeah, responsibility, and I, I call it um, uh, proper behavior as opposed to misbehavior. I mean, you know, the ninety percent of crashes or whatever that people talk about, the uh, you know, and so on, humans' involvement. It's all human misbehavior. It's because you know we pick up our cell phone, we look at our cell phone, and uh, 
out, we fall asleep, we drink too much, you know, all the other, that's all misbehavior. So we, we, we've got to make sure that on, on this, especially when we're doing the beta testing and especially when we're doing all that is that we don't misbehave. This is serious business. And, and yes, you get a great deal of comfort and comfort and convenience and it is really valuable and it is really nice and it is really easy to drive if the car is basically steering itself and then you don't have to look at your speedometer to make sure you're, you're not doing whatever, you don't run up somebody's rear end and all that sort of stuff. It's all, you know, but boy, you know, it's, it's not perfect. It's not near perfect. It's pretty darn good, but you got to pay attention. You can't misbehave with it. Well, again, the book that's coming out Tuesday is called Power Play, Tesla, Elon Musk, and the Bet of the Century. Tim Higgins, the author, thank you so much for taking the time with us. We really appreciate it, Tim. Thank you. Thank you for your interest. And Tim, thank you very much. Thank you for writing it. Uh, and thank you for making it available to all of us. Uh, thank you. Have a great thank one. You. Yep, you too. Thank you to our sponsor, the Smart ETFs, Smart Transportation and Technology ETF. The ticker symbol for the ETF is MOTO. And more information is available at MOTOETF.com. You can find us at SmartDrivingCar.com. Also on Anchor FM, Spotify, TuneIn, Apple, Google, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Amazon, wherever you get your podcasts, you can get those smart speakers to play us too. You can find my tech reports at textonation.com. I'm Fred Fishkin along with Alan Kornhauser. Thank you for listening or watching and please continue to stay safe. Thank you and thank you, Tim. Thank you, Fred.